and we're going to read chapter 24, 1 to the end. Hear the word of the Lord. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way, and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all the things that were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. I can, you can verify that there is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in a synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that they now bring up against, what they bring up against me. But I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by, in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, and there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains in having a clear conscience before God and man. Now after several, several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia... They sought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is that with great respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, Put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was, who was, a Jew, was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about the faith in about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent, him, sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix had succeeded was succeeded by Por Porsicus Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, 
Felix let Paul, left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the 20th, a few years ago, the 20th century Fox put out an advertisement saying that they needed a new salesman for their, for their company. And they got this reply back from an applicant. And here's what was written down. I am at present selling furniture at the address below. You may judge my ability as a salesman if you will stop in to see me at any time, pretending that you are interested in buying furniture. When you come in, you can identify me by my red hair. And I will have no way of identifying you. Such salesmanship as I exhibit during your visit, therefore, will be no more than my usual workday approach and not a special effort to impress a prospective employer. I don't know if this young man got the job or not, but what he demonstrated here is a quality that is rare, although it shouldn't be, the quality of integrity. Integrity. It's easy to talk about integrity, Say, man, our, our government, those who represented us, represent us should be men and women who are just filled with integrity, right? But we look at Washington and even Springfield and we go, oh, Lord. Those are not people who are filled with integrity. It's easy to talk about it, to make a whole political platform, but the reality is it's a totally different thing to live it out. In a 1980 Sports Illustrated, you know, because I'm well-read in Sports Illustrated, a well-known athlete said this, and see if you can guess who said it. Fame is vapor, popularity is an accident, and money takes wings. The only thing that endures is character. Who was it? That's right, O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson. Okay? Talking about character is one thing. Talking about integrity is one thing, but it's a whole nother thing to be living it out. They're two totally different things. And when we find a man, a woman, a child who has a life of integrity internally and externally, where everything matches up, we should pause and learn from that person. And this morning, we're looking at the Apostle Paul, a man filled with integrity, and it is somebody that we need to pause and learn from. He was such a man that was filled with integrity in his defense before Felix to the charges that the Jewish leaders and Tertullus were bringing to him. Paul basically proclaimed his integrity and said, listen, I, I do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before man. I do my best to be a man of integrity. Not only did he proclaim it, he lived it out. And the proof of Paul's integrity is in the pudding. He is a man who has been respected on down throughout the centuries. But Luke carefully contrasts Paul's integrity with the glaring lack of integrity of a certain lawyer, Tertullus, a man who was for fee, hired by the Jews to present their case before Felix. And their, their accusations were nothing but slanderous. And they brought it before the Roman governor. 
Now, Felix, you need to know. Felix was, it was common knowledge during that day that he was a scoundrel. I'll deal with Felix a little bit more in the next week, but I want to say, let you know this much. He was a slave who gained his freedom and rose to power because of his connections. Sound like some of the politicians we, we might know? They kind of rig, make their way all the way up because of connections that he had. He was also one who reveled in cruelty and lust and wielded the power of a king with the mind of a slave. His rule over Palestine was marked with unrest and, and turmoil. He dealt with insurrection by crucifying hundreds, hundreds of rebels. If Tertullus could convic convince Felix, that this renegade, Paul, was a seditious man, it wouldn't bother Felix at all to crucify him or at least lop off his head. So here we have a man of integrity, a man with integrity up against a lawyer, a group of Jewish leaders who had tried to already assassinate him, and a governor who was notoriously lacking integrity. What can we learn what is Paul teaching us here this morning? Well, this is going to be the theme, the thing that we are going to be learning. We can live in with integrity by speaking the truth. Speaking the truth by living in line with Scripture and by keeping a blameless conscience before God and before men. But before we get to this, before we move too quickly to that, I think we need to take to heart one more lesson a quick reminder that's evident from our text. A life of integrity does not shield us from being falsely accused. Here's the reality, is that many of us kind of grow up in this world, if I just do this and I just do this, this will be the result. In fact, your parents tell you, if you, if you just be a kind person, if you, do these, if you do these things, people will like you. Or you'll have a lot of friends in school. The reality is A plus B does not always equal C. It does not always equal C. If, if this world was basically made up of good, kind-hearted people, a man with integrity would be loved, would be loved by his enemies and have no enemies ultimately. But since this world is made up of sinners who love darkness rather than light, and since the life of integrity exposes evil deeds, sinners often slander the man of integrity. That's what happens. And we are naive if we think that if we just live with integrity, we will be protected from false accusations or slanderous attempts to bring us down. Tertullus tried his best. And he had hoped that based on the Jewish testimony that Felix would just, would just act in his usual manner and have Paul executed. Tertullus just flatly lies as he states out that the Jews had arrested Paul in a mob attempt and that Paul was trying to desecrate the temple. And the fact is that the Jews mobbed Paul with the intent to kill him, but the Roman commander intervened and saved his life. And in spite of such blatant falsehood, all the joy Jews joined in in this attack, asserting that the charges against Paul were true. 
when in reality they knew the truth. And Paul was a man of integrity and there was something about his mission, his vision, what he spoke that convicted their hearts and they spoke out against him. The application here to keep in mind is that living with integrity does not shield us from being falsely accused. Just read the Psalms. Read David's Psalms about how he is a man after God's own heart desiring to follow after him with all that he is And he is falsely accused all the time. How long, O Lord? How long? Is often a question that he asks. You could probably state it as a rule that the more godly the man, the more likely he will be slandered. The more godly the man, the more likely he'll be slandered. So that's our first thing that we need to kind of, it kind of frames everything else. So let's look at the three factors that went into Paul's integrity. The first is this, that we can live with integrity by speaking the truth in every situation. Every situation. Not some, not those that are convenient, but in every situation we we are to be speaking the truth. Paul's integrity enabled him to give a calm a straightforward reply to the accusations that were about him. He, he lived openly before God. He lived openly before men. And therefore, he didn't have to weave this tale of half-truths or misleading statements to defend himself. He spoke the truth, refuting the charges in order. Now, this is kind of a, an odd thing in our world. We, we talk about little black lies, little white lies. You know, these, you know, you don't have to tell them the full truth. You don't, you know, we've got varying degrees of shades of, of truthfulness and what we can and cannot share. Or we, we share only certain things as long as they're advantageous to us. But we're not willing to really share the full truth. But Paul was a man of integrity and he shared the whole truth because he could share the whole truth. He he broke down all these, the charges to the charge of sedition. Paul pointed to the facts. Listen, I was only in town for 12 days and I came into town to worship. I didn't even have enough time to stir up any problems. You are crazy. When it it comes to um, the second charge of being a ringleader for a heretical sect called the way, he said, listen, here's the reality. It's not a heretical sect. In fact, I want to affirm the full belief that was written down in all of the law and all of the prophets. I believe that. In fact, I, I line up with the Pharisees who bring these charges. I believe that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. I... In fact, here's the reality. I'm probably more Jewish than they are. I fully affirm everything. The third charge, that he was desecrating the temple. Paul pointed out that his reason for coming to Jerusalem was simply to bring alms and offerings. And he pointed out that he even came for noble purposes, for this this right to purification 
And as he was going about his business, certain Jews from Asia recognized him, and it was they who stirred up the crowd. So being a person who consistently speaks the truth, honestly, is a freeing concept. But I'm not sure that we believe it. Do you? Do you truly believe that speaking the truth in love is a freeing concept? If you're in the spin business of making yourself look better than you really are, then you have to remember everything that you have said. Everything. And you hope that those that you are trying to impress and those that you are talking to don't start comparing notes. Man, don't talk to my brother-in-law because I had this conversation. I told you, though, this, and I told you that. Man, I hope they don't start comparing notes. If you're in the spin business, it's a difficult business. But if your life is a single fabric and you habitually speak the truth, you don't have to worry about what you say to whomever. You just speak the truth to everyone. As Christians, we are commanded in Ephesians 4.25 to speak the truth. We also know that the devil is the father of lies. The God is the God of all truth who cannot lie. Jesus command, claimed that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to him except through him. As followers of Jesus Christ, people who have been transformed by the gospel, saved by grace through faith in him, we should be come people who speak the truth in every situation. Every situation. We should also learn that we live with integrity by living in line with Scripture. That's the second point. How do we live with integrity? By living in line with Scripture. Paul asserts his obedience to to the scripture when he tells Felix that he served the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Becoming a Christian for Paul did not mean that he jettisons the Old Testament. When he wrote in, in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all of scripture, all of scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for training in righteousness... Paul was referring mostly to the Old Testament since the New Testament was not yet widely recognized and accepted as Scripture. All of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, all the way to the end. All of Scripture is breathed out by God. And while the Old Testament must be properly interpreted in the light of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and the light of translation from, transition from law to grace, we would greatly err if we would set the Old Testament aside as irrelevant or impractical. That's one of the reasons why next year we're going to be walking through Exodus. Because it is not irrelevant or impractical. In fact, it is the very foundation of our beliefs as New Testament believers. We need to understand that while the Jewish ceremonial laws 
were fulfilled in Christ and are set aside under the new commandment. God's moral law stems from his holy character, who he is, and is always our standard for godly livings. Being under grace, being under grace never means set aside, setting aside God's moral law. We will grow in integrity and godly living only as we grow and understand all of God's word as truth. Thirdly, we can live with integrity by keeping a blameless conscience before God and men. In light of Paul's hope in God and in light of the certain resurrection of both the just and the unjust, Paul sought to maintain always maintain a blameless conscience before God and men. The concept of maintaining a good conscience is, a, is an important one that we see all throughout Scripture. Paul tells Timothy this in 1 Timothy 1, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He also tells Timothy to keep the faith and a good conscience, warning him that some have shipwrecked their faith in regards to what they believe. So it's crucial for us to understand what it means to maintain a good conscience before God and men. What it means to practice that on a daily basis. So I'm going to offer this as a definition. And sadly, I didn't put it up on the slide for those of you. I could put it out there later. But this is a basic definition of what it means to have a blameless or a good conscience before God. In light of scriptures, Paul said, I believed everything in the law and written down in the prophecy. In light of scripture and the coming judgment, surely they're going to be raised both the just and the unjust before God. We examine our hearts and are not aware of any sin of thought, word, or deed that we have not confessed and turned from or any person that we have wronged and have not sought to make it right. Thought, word, and deed, action towards another that we have not sought to make it right if we can say that we have not done those things, we are living in good conscience before God and men. So the four aspects. We need to inform our conscience by God's word. We need to inform our conscience because of a fallen, the fall of hu the human race, the conscience itself is not a safe guide. It's not a safe guide. You, you get into enough circles and you have enough conversations with people, all of a sudden you go, well, you know, I, I feel that this is okay. And then you talk to this person and maybe they're even a best and a dear friend or maybe a family member raised in the same nuclear family. And all of a sudden you go, really? You think that's okay? Well, yeah, my conscience feels okay, okay about this. What do you think about marriage? What do you think about gay marriage? What do you think about divorce? What do you think about that? What do you think about, oh, I think this, I feel this, I feel this. Well, I feel okay with that. 
Well, ever since the fall of the human race, our conscience is not a safe guide. It's just not safe. Paul himself had once thought even he himself was serving God by persecuting Christians. His conscience was seared to the point that he was persecuting God's people. And even if we compare ourselves with other, others, rather than Scripture, we can conclude that we're doing pretty good, right? We play that game really, really well. Man, if I, if I look at Camden compared to what Camden's doing, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I, I'm not so bad. Or, man, have you seen that and what she's doing? I don't do that. I don't say those things. I don't do those things. And you see what she's done? I am I'm far better of a person than she is. But so if that is our guide, yeah, we're, we're doing okay. But God's word penetrates us like a sword down into our most most being, judging our thoughts and our intentions of our hearts, laying us bare before God's presence for what purpose? To make us aware of sin and the holiness of God. So our, the thing that judges us, the thing that informs our conscience is not culture, is not even our own personal feelings and our own personal convictions. The thing that informs our conscience must be God's forever true holy word. That is the only thing that can inform our conscience. So we must, as God's people, no matter what church you are a part of, what family you are a part of, what particular beliefs you believe about this and this and this, we must grow in our understanding of God's standards as revealed in his word. That is critical absolutely critical. Secondly, we need to live before God on a heart level, confessing and, and turning from every wrong thought, motive, attitude, word, deed. We got to live before God on a heart level. If we only live outwardly before men, we become hypocrites. It's very easy to fake it in front of others, isn't it? How's your marriage? Do you really want me to ask and pry? How's your marriage? Oh, it's, it's going good. Yeah, we're really, we're hitting on all cylinders. We're really, things. and then you ask the spouse and it's like, oh, it's going to hell. <laughs> you know, because we, we, we're scared to really be honest and to live at a real heart level before God's people. And it's easy to live outwardly before other people. Jesus said that, all sin begins in the heart. And so we need to get in the habit of judging it at the le that level before it goes any further. We need to start at the heart, at the very core and say, why? What is really going on here? And if we don't develop this habit, we are deceiving ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves if we think that we are walking with God. It's especially important to avoid rationalizing or excusing our sin by blaming other people. That's really easy. And having a blameless conscience before God means that I quickly confess and turn away from any sin that his word or his spirit convicts me of. Quickly. 
Because it, if you don't quickly recognize it and then quickly confess it and make amends and work towards reconciliation, what does it do? It becomes this callous place in the heart that only does what? It breeds more. C.S. Lewis says that we are to be very aware of our own cesspool, our inner cesspool. Sometimes we get very comfortable of the smell of our own inner cesspool that we don't recognize it anymore, but everybody else goes, I smell it. We need to quickly recognize it at the heart level and confess it. Thirdly, we need to ask forgiveness of those that we have sinned against and take steps to avoid further offenses. It's one thing for me to recognize that maybe I've slandered Bob Chapel in my heart and in my mind, or maybe I've gossiped about him and his, his lovely wife, Tennille, and, you know, we kind of had this conversation over here with the Pabins about, you know, you know what they're doing or how they're acting or, you know, what they do in their free time, and, and we just have this conversation. It's one thing to just all of a sudden say, man, I, I got to stop doing that. It's a whole nother thing to take that step and say, I have wronged you. And I need to ask your forgiveness. And I need to take steps not to allow what took place here so it will never happen again. There should not be anyone who can say to us, you have sinned against me and you have never made it right. We don't need to go to another person if our sin against them was only in our mind. We should repent of that sin before God, but if the other person isn't aware of it, we don't need to go and bring up, you know, the other day, I just had really lustful thoughts about you. And I just need to confess it. It kind of brings things to a really inappropriate and awkward level. That's a thing between you and God and maybe you and an accountability person. But for you to go to that person Things get a little weird at that point. But we should repent of that sin before God and, and seek God's forgiveness for it. But if we know that we have sinned against another person directly or behind his or her back through gossip, through slander, we need to ask forgiveness and seek to avoid repeating that sin over and over and over and over again. Bill Gothard has some uh, helpful teaching on this subject. He emphasizes the importance of even using correct wording so as to reflect the full repentance and, and sincerity or uh, sincere humility. He says it's best not to, to call a person, or I'm sorry, he says it's best to call a person or go directly to that person. Usually what do we do? Sorry about that. I flew off the handle the other day. We send a text message. Or maybe we start acting differently. He says it's best to call or go directly to that person rather than write a letter or do anything else like that. He, and he says, do not say, if I was wrong, please forgive me. If I was wrong. Do you hear anything wrong there? If I was wrong, please forgive me. As Bill points out, it's like saying this, and I quote, if my personality, for which I'm not responsible, has offended you, there must be something wrong with your ability to get along with others. 
But I'll be big hearted about this and assume that maybe it's my fault, which I'm not fully convinced it is, and ask you to forgive me if you still think I'm wrong, that is. Isn't that kind of how it is? You get caught in a sin and it's like, man, if I'm wrong, if I really sinned against you, man, I'm sorry. If, if, if God has convicted you of sin, what do you do? You say, I've sinned against you. And I, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I, I need to be honest. I have sinned. We should say, God has convicted me of how wrong I've been in this basic offense. And I called, I've come before you and say, will you forgive me? Because lastly, ultimately, the motivation for a life of integrity is the reality of eternity and the coming judgment. Paul states that his practice of seeking to maintain a blameless, a good conscience before God and men stems from the certainty of the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. If there is no God, if there is no resurrection, if there is no future judgment, then you're a fool to live as a Christian. Those aren't my words, but those are Paul's. If there is no eternity, then we then live for all the immediate pleasures that you can get because you're going to die soon. But if God lives, if God lives, which I believe he does, if God lives and if he is going to raise every man, woman, and child to stand before him in judgment, which I believe he is going to do, then everyone should repent of sins. Everyone. Every degree. Because before a holy God, there's no such thing as a, a small sin. We need to, when we repent of our sins, we need to trust in Christ as our Savior. And we need to live all of life with a blameless conscience before God and before men. If you cannot go leave here today with a clear conscience, your greatest and most urgent need is to get right with God. If it, even as I'm sharing this, this sermon, you're going, is he talking about this? Hmm, probably. If the Holy Spirit is bringing up this sin in your heart, in your life, and you're, you're going, man, I am feeling uncomfortable. Yes, that is the sin that you need to get right with before God. If you're feeling uncomfortable sitting next to your spouse because there's an issue, that's probably the thing that the Spirit said. Confess that. Seek his or her forgiveness. If there's a person that you are glad that they are not here this morning or that you don't have to see today or this week, maybe that is the issue that you need to get right before God. Maybe if there's a past sin that is just eating inside of you because it needs to come out Maybe that's the thing. 
Because ultimately, sisters in Christ, you one day will face him as judge. And some of you will see him as judge and father. And you will be able to hear him say, well done. Well done. Welcome home, son, daughter. My heart for the Christian church says that we don't do this well. The thing that I love about Missio Day Church is that we're growing in it. We're becoming more honest. And we're repenting more of our sins. And we're becoming more intolerant of slander and gossip. We're growing in the knowledge of God and the law and the prophets and, and the beauty of the New Testament and how it all works together. And as we're being confronted with these truths and the character of God, we're responding. My encouragement is to keep responding. Make it a daily habit to grow in holiness, to grow in your godliness, to grow in your integrity as a man or woman of God. As we're going to see next week, for those of you who are going to be here, you're all welcome back, by the way. I was a little far to travel, but you're welcome to come back. We're going to see next week, Felix was a sad case. And here, even here in this section, we see him waffling. He knows that Paul is innocent, and he knows that Paul should be released. But he also knows that the Jews wouldn't be happy if he lets Paul go, and he can't afford any more unrest from his constituents. So he does what most politicians, and I know that I'm being very bad at labeling politicians, but he does what most politicians do. He punts. He postpones the case with an excuse that he needs to hear from uh, Lysias. And he, this gets the Jews off his back. And he, honestly, it gets them out of town for a while. He, he, he salves his guilty conscience by giving orders that Paul's custody should be fairly comfortable. And honestly, it should be free. This shows us that we have no guarantee no guarantee that everything will go well with us when we walk uprightly before God. Joseph himself in the Old Testament acted with godly integrity. Godly integrity when he re resisted the seductive moves by Potiphar's wife. And what did it do? It landed him in prison for several years. But hear this. The Lord was there with him. Kind of goes back to a couple weeks ago. Paul's encouragement. That night, 23 verse 11, where and the Lord was there with him in prison and said, take heart. Take courage. For as you have been a witness for me in Jerusalem, so you also must be a witness for me in Rome. Take heart. I am here with you. Because here's the reality, it is better to be to have the Lord with you in prison than to have sinful pleasure apart from the Lord. It's better to be with him than to be apart with him and all the worldly pleasures to be with him. 
It's better to be in custody with a clear conscience as Paul was than to have power and money but be alienated from God as Felix was. So brothers, sisters, devote yourselves. Devote yourselves to living with integrity. By speaking the truth in love in every situation. Not varying degrees of truthfulness. Speak the truth. Speak clearly the truth. By living in line with God's word, not the, the ever-changing culture. Live in line with God's word and by keeping a blameless conscience before God and men. However difficult your circumstances are here, you will sleep well knowing that you will dwell in heaven with God throughout eternity. Those are his promises. Amen? Let's pray.